We're in Acts chapter 25, okay? And we're going to read the rest of Acts 25, and then we're going to read the whole of Acts 26, okay? And you're going to, um, as we read, you're going to figure out why we're doing this thing. It's a whole narrative that all is together, um, yeah? All right, I'm going to read, and you guys can follow along. It's lengthy, right? But it's a narrative, and there's so much in there. So do your best to follow along as I read, yeah? All right, let's get going. Acts chapter 25, from verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea um, to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but I convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor, emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. 
from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because what has not done because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. <laughs> this is awesome. 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, 
but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernese, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have literally been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray, and let's dive in afterwards. God, what, <laughs> oh, what a fascinating episode from Acts. And the story of how your church began and spread from Jerusalem throughout the ends of the world, ends of the world, and it's just crazy, God, to think that as we read this, as we've been studying Acts, this is our heritage, um, this is our history as a church right here in San Diego in the 21st century. This is our history, and God, we are thankful for you. Um, God, we are thankful for Paul and his faithfulness. He's not perfect, but he's an example. Um, of what it looks like to truly love and live for you. And so, God, as we just like, draw out some implications from this, I pray that you would speak beyond what I say, um, that you would do what I could never do, and that is to bring understanding and to bring change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. From this episode uh, in the book of Acts, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make some observations and we're going to draw out some implications from this. Okay. And then um, um, we're going to just see how it all applies to us and everything. And to help us do it, I've just kind of broken this whole narrative down into four scenes. Okay. Four scenes. The first scene is the need for a solution. The second is the impacts of the gospel. The third scene is the insanity of Christianity. And the fourth is the desire for all, of all Christians. Okay? And so let's get into the first scene. The first scene is the need for a solution. The need for a solution, if you're writing notes. Okay? And so a few days um, after Festus agreed to send Paul to Rome um, to have his case heard and judged by Caesar. So if you was with us last week, um, if you're not, I would encourage you to read it. But basically what's happened is that Paul stood trial before um, Governor Festus. Governor Festus was a new governor in Caesarea and Paul stood trial before him. And Festus is basically just trying to get this whole Paul case figured out. Okay, They don't know what to do with the guy. Okay, He is super super smart. He knows all the legal um, policies and everything. And they've just, he's just getting, having a headache as to what to do with him. As he was um, judging Paul's case, Paul basically requested for his case to be taken to Rome um, before Caesar. And Paul has a right to do that. He's a Roman citizen and he can do that because his case has been going on and on and on, okay? And so that's what's been happening, and this is what happens after. And so a few days after Festus agreed to send Paul to Rome to have his case heard and judged by Caesar, look at verse 13, okay? 
King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Okay, who was King Agrippa? Who was Bernice? So King Agrippa um, was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Most of you know who that is, but if you don't, let me help you understand who this guy is. Herod the Great was that king who tried to find and kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby. You remember in your nativity plays, the Herod guy? Yeah, you know him. Yeah, that, this is his great-grandson, okay? King Agrippa is his great-grandson. So Agrippa was only 17 when his father died. Okay, so he was considered too young to take over as a king, but since he was the king's son, what they did was they gave him a small piece of land in the northern part of the kingdom to rule. He came from a long line of kings, and because of this, all right, he was often paranoid and obsessed with self-preservation. And so, when Festus became the new governor, okay, Agrippa decided to travel um, to Caesarea to welcome his new colleague and make an impression that would earn the trust and respect of this new governor, Festus. Okay, and so King Agrippa has arrived in Caesarea a few days after Festus has agreed to send Paul to Rome for his trial before Caesar. But he has also arrived in Caesarea at a time when Festus is facing a bit of a dilemma. And the reason why Festus is in a sticky situation is because of his decision to send Paul to Rome, okay? And so, Festus, desperate, he's in a dilemma, and he's desperate for a solution, okay? And so what he does is he seeks counsel from Agrippa. Look at verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. In verses 15 to 22 of Acts 25, Festus gives Agrippa a detailed explanation of Paul's case. He explains to Agrippa how Paul has been the most controversial and hated prisoner he inherited from Felix. And he became aware of how much Paul was hated when he went to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders there. He expected the meeting to be all about what needs to be done to improve relations between Romans and the Jews. But during the meeting, all the Jewish leaders wanted to talk about was the Apostle Paul. They are obsessed with Paul. It's been two years, and they're still obsessed with him, and they're still trying to have him killed. Look at verse 15. And 15. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. Look at verse 18. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Okay, and so Festus is just like, look, Jerusalem leaders, Jewish leaders, super obsessed with Paul. They've got all these charges against him. They bring these charges against him, and these charges are weak, and they're just flawed. Okay, why? What are these crimes they're bringing? Look at verse 19. Instead, 
They had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I love how he says that, okay? Festus, he's just Roman governor. He's like, yeah, you know, they're just arguing about, you know, their religion and this dead man named Jesus who Paul is saying is alive. <laughs> this is interesting. And so after hearing the charges brought against Paul, Festus realized that according to Roman law, Paul has done nothing deserving of death, okay? The dispute about religious beliefs does not warrant the death sentence. But the Jewish leaders believe Paul is guilty and want Festus to convict him to death. And so this is one of the reasons why Festus is in a pickle. He cannot give them what they want. Because if he condemns Paul, he'll be responsible for the death of an innocent man. But if he doesn't give the Jews what they want, they're going to get really mad. And his hard work of trying to build a good relationship with the Jewish community will come to nothing. And so Festus has been put in a really difficult situation. And as difficult as it was for Festus, things got even more challenging when Paul appealed to Caesar. Back then, it was the right of every Roman citizen to have his or her case heard by Caesar himself whenever their case failed to reach a verdict. And so when Paul appealed to Caesar, Festus had no choice but to agree to his request because, like we found out, he's been struggling to get to a verdict. And the whole idea of sending a prisoner to Rome was not straightforward. It wasn't as, all right, let's just get a bunch of soldiers together and let's send Paul to Rome, okay, and ask Caesar to deal with the case. No, it was more complex than that. You had to provide documentation that explains in great detail who the prisoner is, okay, what they're charged with, and a compelling reason why their case needs to be judged by Caesar. You've got to document, okay? I volunteer for a hospice, and everything we do has to be documented. I can't just do anything. People in the medical field, if you're in the military, most of what you do, everything, and so that's what he's dealing with here. He has to provide the necessary documentation um, for Rome. And this is exactly why Festus is struggling and what is making him lose sleep at night. He doesn't know what to say in the letter. Okay? Think about this. It would be damaging to his reputation if he sent Paul to Caesar with a letter that read, um, Hey, Caesar, I really don't know what this man is accused of. Okay? He's probably innocent of any wrongdoing, but I thought I should send him to you anyway. Oh, great Emperor Caesar. It, it, just, it would be stupid to do that. And so, not a good idea. The official letter is what Festus is struggling with, and this is why he has called on Agrippa 
for help. Look at verse 26 and 27 of, uh, um, of chapter 25. But I have done nothing definite, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. So this is Festus explaining the situation. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. He's absolutely right. Right? I need your help because he's done nothing wrong. He wants to go to Rome, but I can't provide the necessary documentation um, that makes it that makes me that makes it fine and legit for him to go. And so, after hearing about Paul's case, Agrippa is intrigued and agrees to help only if he is able to meet with Paul. Look at verse twenty-two of um, verse twenty-two. Then Agrippa said to Festus, "I would like to hear this man myself." Okay, and so that was scene one, okay, the need for a solution, right? Let's now look at scene two, the impact of the gospel, the impact of the gospel. Look at verse 23 of chapter 25. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city um, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And so King Agrippa, like most kings back then, loved to flaunt their wealth and success whenever they got an opportunity, all right? And so he's been invited Okay, to share his opinion on a high-profile case, and he decides to enter the venue with great pomp. Did you guys read that? <laughs> it's, in, it's so interesting. So the, the phrase, with great pomp, comes from the Greek word fantasia. Okay, you know where I'm going with this. And this is the same Greek word we get our English word fantasy from. Okay, and so Agrippa's entrance is something of a fantasy. I can imagine it, okay? Um, it's this crazy entrance where I'm sure there's music, there's confetti, there's dancing. It's just this extravagant um, um, entrance. I would say it's similar to um, celebrities as they walk on the red carpet, or you've seen boxing these days. If you watch boxing in any way, the boxers just come into the ring, and it's just this great incredible extravagant entrance and it's so fascinating because he's not going into the Oscars he's not fighting he's going to provide his opinion on a case and he decides to enter the venue with great pomp after Agrippa's fantasy-like entrance Paul is brought in and Paul's entrance is not flashy or extravagant in any way he's a prisoner and so it's likely that he's brought in wearing his prison clothes and shackled with chains. After everyone is seated, Festus warmly welcomes his guests and briefly explains the dilemma he's facing. After this, Paul is then given permission by Agrippa to speak. Look at the first verse of chapter 21. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. A summary of Paul's speech is found in verses 2 to 22 of chapter 26. 
Okay, we're not going to have time to read it all and break it all down. But the interesting thing about his speech is that it's more of a gospel presentation than a legal defense. What do I mean by this? Rather than pleading his innocence, think about it. Paul has an opportunity, all right, to defend himself and to communicate to King Agrippa and Festus once again that he is innocent. Rather than putting forward all the reasons why he's not guilty, Paul actually shares his testimony. He shares his story of how he became a Christian. His whole speech focuses on his life before he was a Christian, how he became a Christian, and what he's been doing with his life since he became a Christian. Before he was a Christian, Paul was someone who hated followers of Jesus. He hated Christianity. Look at verse 9 and 10. He explains his hatred towards Christianity. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This is a brief description of what Paul's life was like before he became a Christian. He persecuted Christians. But after a supernatural encounter with Jesus, his life was radically changed. He too became a follower of Jesus and dedicated his life to not only knowing Jesus, but making Jesus famous. Listen, Paul had a supernatural encounter with Jesus that transformed his life. There are, according to Google, I searched this, 7.6 billion people on this planet, all right? Out of the 7.6 billion people in the world, 2 billion consider themselves to be Christians. These are, 2.6 billion people are individuals who have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can experience what Paul and every other Christian in this world has experienced. Today, you have the opportunity of a lifetime to enter into a legit relationship with the real God of the universe through Jesus Christ. Today, if you decide to surrender your life to Jesus, you will be saved. You will be radically changed. You will no longer walk in darkness, 
but your eyes will be opened to the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. Jesus will no longer be for you a person in history, but he'll become your Lord and Savior who is actively at work in your life. Today, if you're not a Christian, your life can radically change. You can receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is the impact the gospel can make in your life. That was scene two, the impact of the gospel. Now let's dive into scene three, the insanity of Christianity. The insanity of Christianity. And so Paul has been given an opportunity to defend himself. Okay, and what does he do? What does he do? He, he, instead of like presenting a legal defense of why he's not guilty and everything, he actually shares his testimony and his story of how he became a Christian. And as he's sharing his story, okay, as he's about to conclude the story and really kind of like um, um, get to the point where he pleads with them to become Christians, look at what happens in verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Wow. Calm down, Festus. What made Governor Festus respond in this way? These are some of the possibilities. Okay, as a Roman, it's likely that his worldview, that is how he viewed the world, was rooted in what is known as naturalism. Okay, naturalism is the belief that there is only nature, a material world we can see, feel, touch, and smell. Naturalism doesn't believe in the spiritual or immaterial world. So that's Romans, a a typical Roman belief, okay? Also, as a Roman, Festus couldn't understand Paul's commitment to following Jesus, okay? He couldn't understand why Paul continued to live and follow Jesus even though it involved suffering and dying to self. This was weird and possibly offensive to Festus. Arkent Hughes, who's an awesome pastor and author, says this. It made no sense to him, that is Festus, for Paul to choose a path that not only brought the apostle less pleasure, but more suffering. This is probably why Festus rudely interrupted Paul and told him that he's out of his mind. The way he sees the world, Paul's commitment and dedication to it, just, he, he just didn't understand. So he looks at Paul says to him, you are out of your mind. You're learning. All that you know has just 
driven you insane. In verse 25, Paul responds to him in this way. I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. If you're here and you're a Christian, have you ever had someone tell you that you're crazy for believing what you believe? They may not tell you to your face, like Festus. They may not scream at you and say, you are crazy and out of your mind. You may have had that experience. But if you haven't, it's likely that as you're sharing your faith and telling people about believing in Jesus, they might not scream at you, but they'll give you that look. That look as if you are out of your mind. Ever experienced that? With a fake smile, they'll politely tell you that, hey, Christianity is not for me. But in their minds, they're like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. And let's be honest. I don't blame them, okay? <laughs> what we believe as Christians is kind of crazy when you take a step back and honestly look at it, okay? Um, we believe that a Jewish carpenter named Jesus, who lived thousands of years ago, was God in human flesh. We believe that this Jesus, who was God, died, but he didn't stay dead. He resurrected on the third day, okay, came back to life. And not only that, but he actually, beginning of Acts, if you remember, he ascended to heaven Okay, and now he's sitting on some throne in heaven and he's not just sitting there passively looking down on us. He's actually actively involved in all of our lives. We also believe as Christians that the only way every human on this planet can have a legit relationship with God and make it to heaven is if they trust in this Jesus and they commit their life to him. These beliefs, which are foundational to Christianity, <laughs> is, you can understand as a Christian, how it's, comes across as, as utter foolishness to many of your neighbors, to many of the people you work with, and to even some of your family members who are not a Christian. Some think we're crazy for believing this stuff. 
Festus and Agrippa and the Jewish leaders thought Paul was crazy. They said he was insane. And it kind of makes sense. If you take a step back and look at what we believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said this. He, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and he wrote this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christianity and what we believe is insanity and crazy to those who have not yet had a supernatural encounter with God. The only reason why we believe what we believe is because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It cannot happen in any other way. And so as we think about being on mission and evangelism and everything like that, this is what we have to bear in mind, that yeah, we can be smart and winsome and be able to debate and argue the fine points of Christianity, but at the end of the day, man, at the end of the day, only God can actually take someone who thinks what you believe is utter nonsense and foolishness to someone who is like, wow, I believe this, and I don't only believe this, but I want to live and follow Jesus for the rest of our lives. Only God has done that in our lives. Only God can do that in the lives of people who don't yet believe. That was scene three, the insanity of Christianity. Now let's observe our last scene, scene four, the desire of all Christians, the desire of all Christians. And so Paul remained cool and unruffled by the governor's outburst and insults. And after declaring that what he believes is true and reasonable, he turns to King Agrippa and says to King Agrippa, look at verse 26, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of these, this has escaped his notice because it was not done it is in, in a corner. So basically, like, Paul's just been told he's insane. He responds by saying, no, I'm not. Everything I'm saying is, is, is legit. And then he turns his attention from Festus and turns to King Agrippa and says to King Agrippa, hey, king, everything I'm talking about, you're familiar with it, right? King Agrippa in verse 27 responds, uh, no, he goes on to, you know, in verse 27, sorry, King Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And so at this point, what's happening here is Agrippa is caught of God. And the reason is his public image would require him to say he believed in the prophets. Okay, because he wanted to be both for Jews, okay, and Romans. He wanted to be that kind of king. But he saw where Paul was trying to lead him, and it, he didn't want to go there. So what he does is very interesting. He deflected Paul's question with a clever counter-question. 
Look at that counter question in 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? How would you respond if you tried to share the gospel with someone and they said to you, what do you think, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Don't even bother trying to get me to be a Christian. It's not going to work. I'm just not interested. And they just rejected you. They might call you crazy and insane, but they might politely just say, what you believe is nonsense, and it's not going to work. How would you respond? How does Paul respond to what Agrippa just said? Listen to this. This is amazing. Look at verse 29. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. What would you say you desire for the people you know? Think about some of the people you recently came in contact with. Just think about some of the people you recently came in contact with. Maybe it's friends you interacted with on social media. Perhaps it's the cashier at the grocery store or the gas station. Maybe it's the guy or girl you met at a dog park um, and you briefly exchanged some pleasantries, some conversations. Um, or maybe... Um, you recently came in contact with some celebrities you follow on social media, you're commenting on their posts or whatsoever, um, or maybe it's the people that you work with recently. I've been thinking about this a lot, um, and I've been coming in contact with so many people. Like yesterday, I told you guys, I came in contact with a lot of my neighbors um, for the first time since we moved there. They did a 4th of July thing, and I was able to interact with them. Whoever you recently interacted with, if you were able and you had a power to give them one thing, what would it be? What would you say is the one thing you would want for them? As a Christian, what do you desire most for the people you regularly come in contact with. As a Christian, what should you desire most for the people you regularly come in contact with? The answer to this question is found in Paul's response to Agrippa in verse 29. Let's read that again. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. So just picture what's going on here. 
Paul's been through it. He, this ain't the first time he shared his testimony. This ain't the first time he's standing trial before an influential leader in his time. And this is not the first time he shared the gospel and people have rejected him. And yet, in view of these rejections and refusals, he just goes on to say, look, I pray to God that not only you, but everyone else listening will become a Christian as I am a Christian. As Christians, what we should desire most for the people we work with, the people we work out with, and the people we're connected to on social media is for them to be saved, to become what we are, and that is followers of Jesus. As I was preparing this, you can imagine, I'm thinking all sorts of things, but I'm thinking, God, I want to be able to think this for myself before I can bring application to people. And I'm thinking to myself, it's crazy. This is crazy. So as you can tell, I love soccer, okay? I love football. It's like the best sport in the world. And at the moment, like, you know, the Euros are going on and England are doing really well. So I'm kind of like really interested in soccer more than any other time. And so I was thinking about this, and I was like, man, like, these soccer players, every single one of them, what do I desire for them most, honestly? And I said to myself, what I honestly desire is that they play well, and they win the, um, the Euro Cup for England. That's what I want for every single one of them. And then I was thinking, man, but as a Christian, what should I actually desire for them not just during the euros but every time i kind of come like it should be right for harry kane okay to become a christian right for raheem sterling to not just play like most of course like it's fine to want that but ultimately my desire for every single one of those players and every single person in my social network, social circles, is for them to be saved. Sometimes I forget and I just want people to serve me rather than desiring for them to actually know God as much as I do. And so the question we're exploring is, um, um, what do you desire? What should you desire for the people God has placed in your life? And just like Paul said, look, I pray to God that not only you, but all of who are listening today may become what I am. So the question is, what's your prayer life like? When you pray, what are you praying for most? I would say from now on, as you begin to think about this, your prayer life, I believe, should consist of praying for people that don't know Jesus to become Christians. As Christians, that should be our dominant desire.
for the people we come across so that they may become what we are, and that is Christians. If you're not a Christian this morning, and you're here and you're exploring Christianity, welcome, so happy to have you. Really are. I hope that you would not just, you would not just leave, but I hope that today you would make the decision to dedicate your life to Jesus. And I am here, some of our leaders are here. If you need help doing that, we will be so happy to have a conversation with you and pray for you. And if you are a Christian, may you develop a burning desire for everyone, everywhere, to know, love, and live for Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for everything you've done. Oh, God, I pray that as we've explored um, so many themes and topics, but mostly the whole that thread um, that runs through everything we've talked about is the majesty and beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. And so as we have thought about this and as we're about to sing more about who you are and what you've done, may you May you change us. May you do what only we can do. And if there's anyone in here that's not a Christian, God, I pray that today they would surrender their life to you. And I pray for us as, as Christians, as we have a different worldview to the world and they may think what we believe is utter nonsense and crazy. We're crazy to believe it, God. I just pray that you would strengthen us. It can be so discouraging, so discouraging to hear these things, but I pray that you would strengthen us and help us endure and give us patience and continue to give us a burning desire for everyone everywhere to know, love, and live for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So at this time... We...